Hey, happy Thursday. I'm Benjamin Gottlieb. Coming up in a few moments, we've got a new episode from the Learn with Shopify collaboration we've been doing. These are tips and tricks you can't get anywhere else for scaling your own online business. I hope you enjoy. There's that age-old saying from Field of Dreams, right? Build it and they will come. The much better way is if they are already there, build it for them. And so build into an audience that's already engaged. Uh, That's sort of the best thing. Welcome to Learn with Shopify. I'm Shwang Esser-Shan. And if you're trying to scale your business, you've probably heard of these marketing strategies going viral on Reddit, having flash sales, and tapping into the creator economy. And today we're chatting with a founder who used all these strategies to grow a brand beyond $10 million in annual sales. I'm joined by Ben Sale, co-founder of Cotton, an apparel and home goods brand that all started with the mission of creating the perfect t-shirt. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks for having me. So Cotton's design is all about elevated everyday classics, and that's how you guys set yourself apart. Um, But how did you first initially market to attract people to the brand? Yeah, it's a great question. So what I'd say is whenever you're starting out something, we started with a plain white T-shirt, which has been done a million times, right? Pretty much every clothing company has done it. And so it still felt like there was a, a need for us. And what I would say is anytime anyone's starting a new company, what you want to do is figure out what's the smallest possible market that you can approach. And there's this great book called Obviously Awesome uh, by April Dunford. And it's really just thinking about who is your product obviously awesome to. Um, And so for us, we were, you know, working in the creative industry, we would love high quality things. We didn't make the most money out there and these t-shirts that I was wearing every day were either really expensive or really cheap. And it felt like there was this sort of quality trade-off. And then when we looked into it, you you mentioned creating the perfect t-shirt. I think in that is also this this sort of nuance of creating and what does that mean? And and when we looked into how do you actually make a better t-shirt that sort of fit this middle ground, uh, it, it to us really saw the underbelly of how supply chains work and a much better way to uh, just create products in a sustainable way that was going to do something for the future. So when we went to market that, it was all around who is this product awesome for? And we really just went super niche. We started, of course, with friends and family. And then you go grow by word of mouth. And we like focused in on Toronto and we focused in on creatives. And we went, you know, as small, as small, as small as market you possibly could. And then we expanded from there. So then what are some tactics when you were expanding and trying to basically attract more people? Um, I, I guess like adding people to the top of funnel mm-hmm. and getting the brand out there beyond the family and friends. I think the most important thing, you mentioned the funnel, the most important thing is really understanding when do people realize what value you're giving, assuming you're giving some sort of value with your product. When do they go, okay, I get it. This is great. For us, it really started small. We didn't do any advertising for the first couple of years. We didn't uh, grow like right out of the gate uh, huge. Some of the first things we did was we press. Uh, that was the main th- first thing was like, how do we get our story out there? We knew if we were telling it, people are only going to believe us so much. Obviously, we have a bias that our product is great. So we wanted other great press to, to tell our story too. And what's important with press is really telling them a story that they are going to be interested in. What are they looking to do? What are they 
looking to tell. And so for us, we thought that that was really about our social mission and how we actually make these products and what makes us different and, and how we approach the situation. Uh, and then and then that second piece I mentioned around this aha moment or when do people actually understand your value, that really came to us with this uh, experiment that we did where we had a pop-up shop or just for a day in a marketplace at the Soho House in here in Toronto. And uh, we saw we were only getting a few sales a day at that point. And, and then people started to come and they were touching our T-shirts and they're like, oh, this is really soft. We make all of our stuff with Egyptian cotton. And so then we got to tell them the story. And then all of a sudden, you could just see it really clicking with them. And uh, that was really a light bulb for us because we had this very simple product, as you said. It really differentiated on quality and, and the ethics that were woven into uh, how we actually made the product. Uh, and then the, the key was, you know, when we were competing against some of these fast fashion giants, they have huge budgets for photos. So even no matter how good we made our photos, like they actually looked a lot better than us. You know, they could kind of touch them up, all this sort of stuff. So in person is really where we stood apart and where we started to get a lot more of that value. And then we carry that theme on as we scaled uh, to do more and more in person. And that's why retail is a big part of what we do today. Amazing. So you touched upon press. I wanted to ask about, I guess, tips you can share cold calls or mm-hmm. emails, reaching out to editors and writers mm-hmm. to ensure that they get your story and also they're able to share it with a bigger audience. Not just blasting it. That's mm-hmm. what I'd say is getting personalized, getting tailored. What we did was, uh, one, we looked for what writers we're already covering this sort of thing. Not ones that had done our actual story before. If there's somebody who just did a story and it got covered and it, it's ba- basically what you'd want, they're probably not going to cover you. But if there's somebody who writes about your area uh, and then uh, especially where, you know, they're trying to do their job too. They're trying to do research and find new articles. So you have to look at for an angle that's going to be interesting. And I'd say especially when you're starting out, um, if you're not a huge name yet, then your name itself or the brand story itself isn't that compelling. What's more compelling is what trend are you a part of or what story or you know thing is going to be uh, meaningful to their audience that you can kind of tap into and provide some context for because they would need quotes and they need all this sort of stuff. And so I'd say, you know, uh, getting personal and then weaving yourself into a larger narrative. Um, and then I'd also say sort of niching down. Uh, you don't, you know, going for a Vogue right out the gate is pretty tough. Um, you'd have to have something that's really novel to do that. But the biggest traction early days, I remember, was this blog we got from this guy, Mike Shouts. Um, and he does, you know, men's gear. Uh, and I'd never even heard of the blog before, but we were doing some research. And we found this guy and he was covering it. And he just had a really engaged audience. So it wasn't that he had such a huge reach, um, but the people who did come to his blog really, you know, followed it, trusted his opinion. And so looking for those authentic voices too is is really important. So let's shift gears and talk about COVID and how yeah. it's really impacted buying patterns. Um, tell us about how Cotton handled that period. So by the time COVID happened, we were five years into our business and we'd expanded from just t-shirts to a full range of clothing for both men and women. Um, and then we were starting to lean more into workwear, actually. And COVID happened, and people basically didn't wear pants anymore. So all the stuff that we bought for with spring really shifted. 
And so we had to get inventive with how are we actually going to sell this? Mm-hmm. So what we did was we had this idea that, okay, if we can't move this product, it's actually, it's going to turn into dead stock. And so we thought, okay, what's something that we could do that could really engage with our community that we thought we could give back to them mm-hmm. um, and also could help us move through some of this dead stock? And we came up with this thing that we we called the pay it forward program, I think. So what it was, was we went to all of our most loyal customers and we gifted them. We said, here's one discount. It was generated using an app, Clavio, uh, with email. And so it would, it would generate unique discounts for every single one of the people. And then when they got that discount, they could come to this special page. And on that page, they could pick any one product and they'd get that product for free. All they had to do was pay for shipping. And then once they got that product and paid for shipping, they would get then three more invites that they could send out to their friends. And we had a limit of, I think, uh, 5,000 or so uh, products that we would we would do. That was kind of the total amount that we had uh, in dead stock that we said, hey, this is the amount we can kind of shift through. And the theory was that obviously we want to move through that dead stock, but also we could acquire some new customers, get a lot of exposure to our brand. If we start with our most loyal people, it'll spread to their friends and people that they, you know, if you only have three invites, you don't have a million, so you want to send it to the people that you think are going to get the most value. And we thought that would be a really great way to expand that audience pretty quickly. And we thought it was going to take about three weeks to do it. Um, so that was that was sort of the, the the initial setup for it. And then you guys kind of got caught up in this whole wave and a little bit of virality with Reddit. Um, how did you manage the spread of this sale? Yeah, so when we were setting it up, we thought, okay, this is probably going to take us three weeks. Uh, you know, we we figured it's a pretty compelling deal, but maybe p- people can't find their fit. We thought that's how long it was going to last. And what happened was we we sent out some stuff to just a few people early on to see like, okay, let's make sure that it all works. We'd set up a bunch of stuff with Shopify scripts and things like this. And so um, one of the, the email that we sent out actually got leaked onto Reddit. And uh, I actually didn't have one of the discounts set up properly and the shipping wasn't actually being charged for originally. We actually didn't think that that was something we were going to do. And within five minutes, we had about 6,000 orders come through on Reddit and it totally blew up and we were freaking out like, oh my gosh, this was this was crazy. Uh, you know, we only noticed because all of a sudden like things started breaking with how our fulfillment setup worked. So we actually refunded all those people. We canceled the orders. I, there wasn't a refund because there wasn't anything to pay for. But we canceled <laughs> all the orders. We sent out this thing saying, hey, you know, this was really for our community. It got taken out of context. Uh, we're really sorry this happened. Here's a 20% off discount uh, that you can use one time on our site. Um, again, sorry, but this wasn't for you. And, you know, it got exploited. Uh, it's just there wasn't there wasn't a way to play ball with that. It, the response was actually really great. So what happened was that email then got screenshotted and posted on Reddit. And of course, the first post right out of the gate is one of these guys saying, hey, you know, you should give me my free chinos. And funny enough, Reddit, the place where I'm always scared to post, they actually all chimed in saying, hey, this is actually a great brand response. Like, you know, you got something for free and you got caught. Like, don't, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, it actually really worked out well for us and sort of taught us that, hey, you should be charged for shipping. This this sort of hold that you had around the, the not charging for shipping made the friction way too low. So people who with no intent or no care for our brand were just buying for for a really good deal. 
And then um, we ended up getting a ton of sales out of the 20% off on, on Reddit too. And that post actually went to the top of that subreddit, which I think was like male fashion advice or something like that. So that was really cool. Um, and then the next day, we ended up being able to roll out that program again. Uh, and, and so the really great thing there was we had this amazing lesson learned. We got this extra traction from, from Reddit. And then when we did roll it out, we were totally prepped and ready. We had all the systems sort of stress tested. And then what actually we were planning for three weeks ended up going running through in three hours. And uh, that, yeah, it was just a crazy response. It sounds very intense to grasp. But I guess my question is, sometimes when you're wrapped into the Reddit wave, you can't really control it. Right. For those who are interested to use Reddit as a marketing channel, what are some advice you have for them? Yeah. So with Reddit, I think it's important to realize that Reddit is a massive platform with tons of different subcommunities that are hugely, hugely varying. There's not, it's not just, this is what Reddit is like. Every single one is just a group where passionate people come together. And so, you know, they're talking to each other every day and they're really, really engaged. I'd say like being specific with who you want to talk to and making sure that you're doing a genuine connection, there's a huge amount of value that you can get out of Reddit. And uh, there's just so much engagement. It's the intention with Reddit is going to a place to find links to click on. So there's no place better in terms of driving traffic to your site, from my opinion, especially from an organic perspective, uh, where you can go. Some of the ones that we looked at uh, for sales every time was like this one called Frugal Mail Fashion Canada that was huge in engagement for us. It only had I can't remember, a few thousand Redditors, but there were always, 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 at any given time of day, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people looking at it real time. And so when we'd make a post, our post would often get to the top for a couple of days. And anytime we did a sale, that would be there. And what I'd do is, if you were only making that post every time you make a sale, you're going to get kicked off. So you want to make sure you're following a few key subreddits that you're going to engage with. And then really engaging with that community and becoming a known entity um, so that they actually allow you to do that. And different Reddit subreddits have um, rules as well. You can't just go ahead and post. Sometimes you have to reach out to the moderators and make sure that that's all cool. Um, I'd also say Reddit is really great from a customer research perspective. I've heard from a really huge um, makeup brand that they did tons of their customer research just by looking at a few key you know, big subreddits and looking at what are the top posted things. And they'd see from there, okay, this is what people are really wondering about. Let's go answer that on social. Let's go create a product for this. Let's go, you know, and then respond to that. And I think there's that uh, age old saying from Field of Dreams, right? Build it and they will come. The, the much better way is if they are already there, build it for them. And so build into an audience that's already engaged. Uh, that's, that's sort of the best thing. And no better place than Reddit where people are literally upvoting and telling you this is the thing we care about. Mm -hmm. I love it. So really connecting and understanding a community. Mm -hmm. And I think that parallels with how you guys had these limited edition collections with various artists. So tell us more about those programs. Yeah, I guess all of this really comes into the strategy of niche to win and being local first. That was really, um, is really key to us. And one, that really dovetails into an overall ethos with our brand too, of just this story of authenticity and trying to go back to our roots and you know really connecting with how we make our products. It really started from, we just 
really overlap with the creative community. That's where we were, that's who, who we were, and, and a lot of our friends were. It started with just sort of screen printing t-shirts, and we would do it when we opened up our Vancouver store. Um, we, we partnered with an artist out there to make you know a line there. And when we did you know some different engagements in Toronto, we did um, some partnerships, and we've had some different collaborations with Holt Renfrew and um, most lately, a really fun one that I loved was Actual Source, where we made this whole knitwear uh, piece. Um, and so those are really about, I'd say whenever you're doing those collaborations, there's there's two sort of things. One is really understand what the purpose is. For us, uh, it was really about engaging with an audience. The most important thing is, is what's the customer value? What would make them want to go to that next stage? What makes them want to click? And a lot of things with ads, while it's the easiest way to sort of turn on the faucet, it's also the lowest in terms of customer value, unless you can do something really interesting. And that's where I think TikTok and stuff like that come in. But uh, for us, what we thought was cool was like creating a product for an audience, again, going to where the audience already is and serving up, hey, here's this artist, uh, one of our best ever collaborations in terms of just traction was with this tattoo artist, Jess Chen. And she's a tattoo artist here in Toronto. And when every time we've done work with her and created a release, it's just been a huge amount of sales because it's people who already love her art. They're already looking to buy that art from her and tattoo it onto their body. And here we can make something, you know, much lower cost into versus a tattoo and also lower commitment, uh, like a t-shirt and give it to more people versus a one-on-one with a tattoo. And so that that was something that was really, really interesting. It helps, you know, reaffirm your community, um, just, you know, create more of those connections. It's social proof with people that are really influential uh, in a meaningful way, not just in a total followers kind of way. Um, and then it also just like, it, it really just helps signal who are you? What do you care about? So, uh, yeah, just kind of like focusing in on who it's for and and people that love it and sort of, you know, local first. Mm-hmm. And it keeps things fresh. You have new offerings. And I feel like limited edition anything gets people excited. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk about how this actually led to a giant creator kind of project where you worked with over 70 creators and you scaled it to over 2 million. So yeah. how did you almost build this giant merch arm of the company as well. Yeah. So we were making these great collabs that was great for sales and engagement. But also we sort of saw that if we're doing this too much, it's going to start to get oversaturated and you want to kind of space them out. Jess Chen, who, who, who really kicked off this arm, she's also really great at this where she's the reason why she's getting so much engagement on all of her product drops is she's pretty sparing and she doesn't just keep keep pumping them out she's you know really great hits and sort of keeping people engaged by focusing on quality over quantity so when we did this just chen thing uh, this was actually right past covid just after the pay it forward um sale and we reached out to jess we'd done a uh, collab with her before that was really successful and we knew that she was out of work her her, uh, business was actually shut down Mm -hmm. her studio uh because of COVID, you couldn't go in and get a tattoo. And so we said, hey, you got such a great response last time. What if we did this again? You could make anything you want uh, from using our products as a sort of canvas. And then uh, let's actually just sell right through your channels. It was just an experiment. 
And my business partner, Rami, said, hey, Ben, how can you do this in four hours? That is your time constraint. I was like, there is no way. It's not possible. So I actually used the Shopify buy button. And she designed these Oxfords and sweatpants. And we actually put this using the Shopify buy button right onto her website. And then she posted it on social. Within 10 minutes, she was sold out. And without telling too much, it was like in the tens of thousands of dollars. It was crazy. People were actually on her website because they knew she was going to post it. And they were like looking for it. You could see in the search trends, they were trying to dig around to find it. And that was this major aha moment for us. Like, okay, wow, not only is this great for the cotton brand, but we might actually have this other opportunity where we can take all of this supply chain work that we've done, all this, you know, really heavy duty stuff we spent seven years doing, and actually leverage that to give people like Jess a platform to go and, you know, expand their brand, expand their offering, provide something new to their community that they want to, you know, wear and represent. And so uh, Jess was a perfect case study, and we've done a lot of work with her since. But then we ended up evolving that into just a whole separate business so that it wouldn't dilute the main consumer thing. And part of this, too, is it is an overall theme that I'd encourage people to think about with it, which is growth loops, which is like for everything that you put out there, how can you get the byproduct of that thing to fuel the top of the funnel again? And you can do this in any sort of strategy. Uh, but with this was, okay, we make a collaboration with Jess. These people get these things. More of these people now have a cotton logo on the inside of their shirt uh, because it is totally white labeled by her, but we still have the care tag and all this. And so then they can come, you know, get more of our products. We expand our reach. More, some of those people are creators. Some of Jess's friends are creators. They're posting about it. That can get more creators in the top of the funnel and the loop can continue. Uh, and we ended up evolving the, the product overall and just try to make it faster, fit more sites. Uh, we created an app so that people who already had a Shopify store could import the products into their site and just have them sort of drop ship. Uh, but with us sort of as the fulfillment partner, uh, we had this, uh, you know, our own version of the buy button that would be more themable and fit different people's sites. And then we had this uh, custom checkout template that we used to, to actually adapt to the different brands so that even the checkout experience felt like their own. And we just kind of tried to make it a, a platform for creators to uh, really grow their business and kind of expand what they could do and create a new line of income for them. Um, so yeah, for us, really, really great. It led to a, a bunch of unique stuff. And we do now continue to have that arm of our business that is now powering creators and, and businesses for merch and all that sort of thing. Another more community-based, I guess, strategy is also your retail. Um, and I feel like a lot of founders and business owners might be intimidated by retail with the added overhead. Um, but for you, you actually say that it's very impactful and acts like a marketing engine. Mm -hmm. So tell us more about your retail. Yeah. So this is one of those things where uh, I think it's really important, all the different tactics that you do, it's important to think about how are they layering on top of one another? And how do they feed into each other so that the outcomes are multiplied? Whenever we were entering a market, what we would do is we would focus on you know, local press. Uh, we would hold a influencer dinner. Uh, we would uh, do one of these local collaborations with a local artist and we would do a pop-up and we would have all those things and we time box it to a month and we'd have all those things sort of happen at once so that we could really see how can we attack this market from all angles and make sure that 
hey, give it the best shot it has at success. And then if that was successful, we could then follow up, double down and create actually a full time store. And you can even go, you know, smaller than that. I said, you know, right at the beginning, the first few months of business, we had a local market uh, with Soho House that we did a pop up in, just set it up. We had a rack of t-shirts. It was nothing big. I don't think maybe $80 is what we spent, right? And the next big thing was we had this this pop-up two years into our business in Toronto. We did uh, for two months. We didn't just do it at any two months. We did it over the Christmas holidays when shopping was going to be big, right? So this local first approach, we kind of thought this is the best way to create this sort of atomic network where you can have a higher density of people and chances that they're going to bump into each other at a bar or, you know, see each other at a coffee shop and recognize something and say, hey, you know, create that spark, right? And so uh, that that's really how we attacked it. And we thought the, we, we've really approached retail as an opportunity to create a community space where people could come in, uh, host these branded events. It was really for understanding the full perspective and the uh, of the brand and, and less around dollars per square foot and, you know, all that sort of thing. It was really around, can people come in here and just get it and be engaged with all of the senses? Can we have the scent, uh, you know, match what we feel like is the scent for cotton and kind of create that experience? Can we have, you know, the right playlist that's playing? Um, can we just have the, the, the attitudes of the people who are serving them, which were for a long time, just myself and my co-founders, um, you know, be really inviting, engaging, and just make sure that they, we can make the best time of their day when they're here. And then uh, really just not try and sell, but just try and be there for what they are. And and then outside of the retail hours, hold events, um, you know, use that space and the rent that we're paying to its full potential and create a place where we can bring people together and create more of those connections and kind of just be associated with that feeling. And so, yeah, that that's really how we've done it. And what it's led to is... Uh, you know, our biggest markets, like for when we had Toronto as our one store, it, it ended up being 60% of our sales in Canada, which at the time was our, our largest country. And uh, and then within Toronto, uh, 70% of the orders were happening within a two kilometer radius of the retail store. And then another interesting thing is a lot of those orders from online weren't actually like none of those people are actually coming in. But when the people did shop both online and in retail, then they got the convenience of online and sitting at home in your boxers or whatever. And going in and getting the full experience and the trust of what our retail store gives, those were the people that would be most bought in. And they were kind of our you know, MVP customers. Like That was who we really wanted to focus on. And those omni-channel customers were worth two and a half times more in terms of lifetime value than repeat customers from either channel. So one of your co-founders... Rami is a close friend. Mackenzie is actually your wife. Um, can you tell us how you intertwine personal and professional life together? Yeah, you have to pick your co-founders very carefully. A lot of people said when we were starting this, are you sure you want to, at the time she was my fiance, are you sure you want to start this with your fiance and your friend? What I would say is, the most important thing in doing a business is trust. Whether you're joining a business or you know a- anything really, like it, it's all about relationships. You can't do this on your own, and that really comes from trust. And there's a lot of great uh, companies that have been built by solo founder, but for me, it was I just knew it was my first company. There's no way I could do this without the support 
of, of co-founders. And it's one of those things too, we're all competitive people. So whoever, uh, you know, one person's having a bad day wants to quit, but they don't want to be the first one to quit and everybody else is sort of hanging in there. And so that really helped us keep things along. A few things that we did well, I'd say one, the three of us have completely different skill sets. And we really knew when we were chatting, we, we brainstormed well together. We had great creative ideas, uh, but we were really complementary. And so Rami really handled more of the business end of things. Mackenzie really handled more of the brand end of things. And I really handled more of the digital end of things. And so those came together really well. And that we just were able to feed off each other. And then the second thing is great feedback. That's so important. And so for us, you know, there's this these axes of specific and constructive feedback. So, you know, generic and good, not very helpful. Um, you know, mean and bad, the worst. Um, but you can have any sort of feedback be great as long as you've built enough trust with the people so they understand that you're coming from a place of positive intent. And then Two, that you're being specific around what is it that they did? And then how do you think, what did it come off to you? What was your perception and how you would have appreciated it being, you know, better and being specific and constructive in that way? And so that was something we always did. We had these uh, monthly founder brunches. So first thing in the morning before anybody could could be mad about the day because you're just still tired, uh, we'd meet up like at the break of dawn and we would actually just say, round table, what do you hate about each other this month? And we would just like dive into it. And it was cool because removed from the office, removed from the usual setting, we, we knew the intention was there. If anybody was feeling off that day, we'd call it off. But you sort of show up knowing, okay, I'm not going to get great feedback. And yet, and, but then it always was good. Nobody was ever dumping on each other. It was always really positive, reinforcing. And that just like, Eight years of that, you know, I, I saw my wife 24-7. We, our desks were beside each other at work. And uh, I just can't imagine having done that without Mackenzie and Rami. And the bonds that we have are just sort of, you, you really can't replicate that. And another big part is your commitment of having a positive impact in the farming communities that supply the cotton. Um, so tell us about the social and environmental commitments that you guys have made. Yeah. So I said, you know, when we were starting out, it was this really small, naive goal. We thought this was going to be a side project. I wanted to make a better T-shirt. What was a better T-shirt going to be like? What's the perfect white T-shirt? You know, this grailed sort of mythology. And when we looked into it, there were these huge trade-offs. There was like $10 t-shirts and $100 t-shirts. And the $10 ones I was wearing all week, $100 ones only on weekends. And so we figured out, how can we make something better? And we went to Egypt uh, because Rami was, our, he was actually already there. He's Egyptian in his heritage and, and also was there for a family wedding. And we knew that Egyptian cotton was this great fiber. And so he actually decided, hey, maybe I'm going to go check out these farms, see what's up. Next thing you know, we spend a ton of time on, on, on these farms where we lived there for six months. Um, we got to know these people and we actually got to see, okay, what actually goes in, you know, not just the cake, but how is this thing baked and what goes into this? And the answers were really disturbing, frankly. Uh, like once you see these, you know, inconvenient truths, you really can't unsee them. And it just didn't sit right to us that you, that you could build a business on something that was going to exploit people. And we figured 
okay, let's let's not worry about where in the world it's made. Let's worry about how it's made. And let's think about what ways could we do it so that if we're successful, uh, we could maybe change something. You have to be naive when you're starting a business because there's otherwise no way that you could think that you could take on a Goliath that's out there. Um, all the fast fashion guys are so huge, you know? And so we just kind of had this gumption and, and, and naivety about what if we could change all of Egypt? What like, Rami, what would this mean for you that we could change like where your family came from and like these farmers in their lives? And so, yeah, so we started with just figuring out first, what does fair prices look for them? Then two, what are the biggest pain points and how do we make them active partners in this? And three, we actually needed materials and we weren't big buyers. So we actually wanted to overpay so that we could get in on this fiber that otherwise we were being squeezed out of because bigger deals. And so we gave guaranteed subsidies and prices. And then four, um, as we started to, to get more from them, we actually spent more and more time with these farmers as well. And we noticed that there were these children um, just chilling, all their kids. They're, they're all small family run uh, farms. And all their kids were just hanging out there on the field. And we're like, okay, what are these guys doing? They're like playing basketball over there. Why aren't they in school? Well, it turns out there's no schools nearby. Near school is a four-hour walk away. So they can choose. Do you want to work today or do you want your kid in school? Well, not really a choice because if you don't work, at some point your kid can't keep going to school. So we then started this mission where we partnered with uh, this, this not-for-profit, uh, UNESCO award-winning business over in Egypt that specializes in building elementary schools and they didn't build them any any in this region and we said so hey can we can if we give you the funds could you actually come and build these elementary schools here and so we did our what we did was we actually took all of the proceeds from uh, one of our first black fridays and we reinvested that and we we put all that money into building a school and then we've just continued to do that every year and so now we're up to uh, 15 elementary schools in the nile delta uh, we're impacting 2600 uh, smallholder farms maybe a little more now and uh, that equates to about 150,000 lives in the nile delta where you know it's not like it's not a charity it's really a partnership where we're giving to them they're giving their People are donating their land in order to build these schools on because otherwise you have to get the land somehow. You know, they're they're giving us the, this cotton. They're taking a bet on us. They're not changing their fields from cotton to rice. So that, that was for us, like, it's about how do you create true partnership? How do you create, like, a true positive sum game? Like, how do we create something better that doesn't squeeze these people um, and, and, you know, that we're also not squeezing our customers. There's, we just want to have everything sort of just win and just like abundance for everybody. Mm-hmm. And sounds like there's a lot to balance there. Yeah. And you're trying to create all of this impact for the communities. Right. Um, I think from the perspective of other founders, yeah. they might find it a little intimidating sure. to understand how to make the finances work and also think about it in all aspects of their operations. Um, so do you have any tips for those who do want to include the social impact within their business model um, and what things they should look out for when they're trying to implement it? Sure. So I think the first thing to think of, again, is what happens if you're successful? Like really successful. Like what if you build the biggest company in the world, right? If you do something where your business model is a net negative impact to the world, you run yourself out of business at some point because the world collapses, right? Like you're infinitely successful. If you do something where you're a net positive to the world, 
you create more of a market for yourself the more you grow. And so I think starting really small is key. We started with only 500 t-shirts. And uh, some directional things that I'd say are really easy is, um, you know, there's a lot of prior art here. There's a lot of people making this, you know, doing the research. You don't have to have a PhD um, to say, here's where to focus. So, uh, you know, for example, the UN has these sustainability goals. You can look through those and figure out which of these best align with what my business does today? What are the byproducts of my business? And what are they, how do they align to these things? And what tweaks could I make to my business model? What things could I just pay a little bit more attention to um, to really help drive one of these forward so that I'm part of this strategy? And then the second thing I would say is that, uh, oh, you, you can look for other people that can hold you to account. It's really easy to do something and say, we're doing the best and pat yourself on the back. And once you get in there, it's a pretty easy echo chamber. So um, having people who can hold yourself accountable to that, that are third party and neutral is really key. We rely on a co- company called uh, B Corp for us, uh, which is a great set of standards that sort of creates a traceable or a transparent measurement across a bunch of different dimensions to rank you. Um, and there's, you know, B Corp Awards with Best for the World, which I'll boast and say that we've won twice. Um, but it's not about the competition. It's about, like, creating this healthy camaraderie where, you know, there's there's people that are boosting each other up. And so, yeah, I would say, you know, look for prior art. Who's already done this? What standards exist? Um, UN sustainability goals are key. And then start small. And if you, you know, the best time to start is right at the beginning when you can design this into your business model. And then the next best time is now. And the worst time is any day in the future. Are there any future plans and projects that you can share for Cotton? Yeah, so I I don't know how much to share, but I think so. We're we really love retail. It's our best. Uh, it's just it's just the most fun. And so we're expanding in retail, and there's a lot of exciting plans for that. Uh, COVID has been such a drag with with a lockdown there. And not really getting to see people, and we, we like love those interactions. So uh, really investing in that and expanding there, and com- continuing that local first approach, um, doing much more uh, like much better partnerships with artists and, and, and other brands, as I said. Um, so like just just more interesting products go deeper in what we can actually do, and then uh, just continue to make really cool stuff. I, you know, we expanded into home just a year ago. It's now like within a few months, it was a third of our business. And there's so much cool stuff in home that we can do. Uh, m- most of our, our our stuff comes from Egypt. That's our that's our, we have an office there, and it's where we source a lot of our stuff. And uh, the roots of our business is in Egyptian cotton. And so we we brought a lot of stuff from the uh, from uh, the souks there, and and brought them over, and and have these artisanal goods here as well that we can sort of expand our home collection with. So just a lot of fun things. I think just continuing to grow that universe, uh, continuing to get to know our customers, and just invest in um, just making something better on all fronts, better products, better ways of doing it, and uh, just a better experience overall. Well, I'm excited to see other chapters of Cotton unfold. Thanks for being here, Ben. Thanks for having me. Ben Sale, one of the co-founders of Cotton.